Good morning, New River Valley and Blue Ridge churches. It's wonderful to worship together and such a privilege. Uh, you know, guys, Kim uh, babysat me as a child. And before service, we were reminiscing on some of the stories. And man, is she an incredible woman and, and so inspiring. Uh, but also, man, I love the song that we just sang together. Oh, swing low, sweet chariot, let me ride. All right, we're going to jump into Luke chapter 13 and pick up where the Blue Ridge Church has left off, I think, two weeks ago. And we're going to begin in verse 18 this morning. And the title of the message is Contending Kingdoms. Contending Kingdoms. You know, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Benjamin Hutchins. I live in Christiansburg, Virginia, with my beautiful wife, Melina, and our future baby daughter, Fetus. Uh, unless, I guess she's a baby now. She's maybe no longer a fetus. Um, but it's wonderful to be with you guys. And I was actually born in the old Martha Jefferson Hospital that no longer stands there in Charlottesville. I think down by uh, the county building and the courthouse and things like that. And my parents moved to Charlottesville for the Blue Ridge Church planting in 1995. And they literally had me when the church was planted. You know, so 1995, Blue Ridge Church is being planted. My parents come in with a, a newborn infant baby, and my dad goes on stage. He goes, something like that. And I was literally the first fruits of the Church of Charlottesville. And man, is it a privilege to join with you guys again today. You know, in 2009, my family moved to Virginia Beach, and I ended up becoming a Christian there. And then moved back to Charlottesville uh, in 2014 um, to go to school at UVA. And, you know, my time in Charlottesville and in the campus ministry there were some of the most formative years of my faith. And, uh, you know, I, I owe so much of my faith to the Blue Ridge Church. You know, in December of 2017, I graduated from UVA and, and moved to Blacksburg. And I've lived here in the New River Valley uh, with my wife now, Melina, uh, since then. And college is really cool. And so I, I love being with you guys and, and reminiscing of my college days at UVA. Uh, but, it, you know, college years, this formative time for people is really when you get to college, you start really seeing different visions of the good life that maybe you didn't always see or think about growing up. You know, those of you in the Blue Ridge Church probably know Charlottesville has a bit of an uppity reputation in the state of Virginia. And uh, Charlottesville has a, has a way, you know, of being, and you just kind of embrace it. You know, but the Charlottesville rhetoric will tell you that you need to get your groceries from Trader Joe's and Whole Foods because it's better, right? Uh, Charlottesville rhetoric, the Charlottesville vision of the good life, also necessitates that, that all men own a nice pair of khakis and some Sperry boat shoes so that they can look good, you know, at Fridays after five on the downtown mall. And Charlottesville's culture fights for our affections, right? Uh, for those of us in the New River Valley, we think Hokie Nation, right? Even the Radford students are like, go Hokies, right? You know, and so the culture we're in, our local context, fights for our affections. They provide us visions of the good life. And Charlottesville's culture, you know, they have a very unique culture, but really Charlottesville is just a microcosm of, of these visions of the good life that every cultural context in the world offers its inhabitants. You know, and so when we, when we think about every community that we're in, you know, if you're on a college campus, maybe it's the idea of the image of that guy or girl who's in a fraternity 
and, and is the life of every party, but is also the best student in all their classes, maintaining straight A's, and is number one in line for the best internships. Right? Maybe that, if you're on a college campus, maybe that's the vision of the good life that you're faced with. You know, maybe if you have kids in elementary school, maybe it's the PTO, right? Being involved, being at, you know, at all the fairs and whatever other fundraisers. Maybe it's your local gym, or, or maybe it's something bigger or smaller. And there's these different visions of the good life that are competing or contending for your affections, for your worship. Now, I'm guilty of this when it comes to beds. Yes, like the thing you sleep on, right? <laughs> um, you know, so in Malia and I, the first bed we've owned uh, was a queen bed that was a hand-me-down from my parents. It was an awesome bed. And we bought our house here in Christiansburg, Virginia, almost two years ago. And when we got our house, we said, hey, you know, we, we want to have people and host people here a lot. We want this to be a place for people to come to. And so we set up a guest room, right, which meant that we could put our bed in the guest room and get a new bed for us. And uh, I bought into the vision of the good life that says that your life will be better if you have a king-sized mattress. And it, honestly, it's true. When you have a king-sized mattress, any other mattress just seems fit for a peasant, right? You, you're in a king-sized mattress, you go to a queen, you go to a full or a twin, especially with two people in a full, you're like, oh my gosh, like where is my bed at, right? And so we got this king-sized mattress and I was you know, fired up, got a great deal on it. And, uh, you know, it was awesome. But when I think about different sized beds, it makes me wonder, well, what size bed did Jesus have? What kind of bed will the kingdom of God come with? Will it be a king size bed for a king size kingdom, right? You know, so we think, well, what kind of bed would Jesus have? And we're going to read here in Luke 13. Obviously, there's a connection there with the text. Luke 13, we're going to pick up in verse 18, and um, the passage right before this, Jesus heals a woman who's been afflicted by a demonic spirit, making her into a hunchback uh, for years and years and years, 18 years, going to synagogue every Sunday, and Jesus comes and he heals her, and he goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the synagogue leader at that little local congregation who says, hey, don't heal on the Sabbath, heal any other day, and Jesus says, are you serious? The kingdom of God is one about healing. It's one about deliverance from these evil spirits, these evil kingdoms in the world. And so people end up rejoicing and praising God for what Jesus is doing. And we start to think, well, what is Jesus doing? What kingdom is he bringing that can contend with the evil spirits and demonic forces of our present world? And we pick up in verse 18. And then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? Is it like a mustard seed? In fact, it is, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again, Jesus asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast or leaven that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour, three measures of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And some person asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. 
Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you'll say, hey, but we ate and, and drank in your, uh, with you. You taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all of you evildoers. And there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and the first who will be last. We're going to pause there. And so, so Jesus is bringing this contending vision of the kingdom and he brings it to people and people are rejoicing. And, and he says, well, let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like though. And he uses two images. He uses an image of a, of a tree that has great branches that bless all people. Or birds representing as the, the nations, the Gentiles, all people groups. Where, where birds can, come and, can uh, come and perch in its branches. This great tree. And then he uses the image of some flowers. 60, me, uh, 60 pounds or, or three measures of flour. Enough to, for a, a great feast. Incredible hospitality to bless many peoples and feed many mouths. And both of these Old Testament images, I'm sorry, both of these images are Old Testament images. You know, this idea of a great tree that grows up, reaches the heavens and has branches that, that let birds perch in them or birds flock into them. This is an image that's found in Daniel 4, verses 10 through 12, and Ezekiel 31, verse 6. And in both these passages, you know, the, the writers, the prophets, uh, tell about this great tree that grows up and reaches the heavens and, and it has a shade for all the animals to come under and has branches where birds are perching and saying that this is a great tree that has power over all people groups, all nations. And in both of those passages, the tree is representative of the kingdoms, the greatest kingdoms of the world in that day. And those were Babylon and Assyria, respectively. And they, they kind of echoed the empire of Egypt before them. And so you have these great kingdoms, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, and this, this idea of this big tree. And so Jesus says the kingdom of God will be like that. But he says it in a way that's disruptive. Because those trees in the Old Testament passages, those trees, the tree was described as a cedar of Lebanon, which was the most magnificent tree in the Middle East. It was, it was actually the lumber that was used to build the temple of God. You know, it's these amazing large trees, biggest trees in the Middle East. And Jesus tells this parable and says, the kingdom of God is like this great tree that, that has blessings for all people. Except it's not a cedar of Lebanon. It's a mustard seed. And that God sticks it in the ground and it grows. And what's crazy though is you think of a cedar of Lebanon and those passages reaches to the heavens. Here, a mustard seed grows into a, a great tree. Jesus is kind of, it's almost comical when he says that because a mustard tree, even fully grown, is like eight to 12, eight to 12 feet tall max, like fully grown max. It's more of a bush, like maybe a, like a front yard garden bush, not a, not a tree, not a real tree. And so Jesus disrupts our understanding of the kingdom of God here. 
And then we see this, you know, this passage where he likens the kingdom of God to yeast or to leaven in dough that works its way through the whole batch, multiplying the dough until it fills the dough and the dough expands and becomes a blessing for a feast. And this is imagery that comes right out of Genesis chapter 18, where God and his angels come to visit Abraham and Sarah. And we have God come to, to earth, come, you know, the heavens and the earth meet. God comes to earth and, and Abraham and Sarah, they don't even know it's him, right? But God comes to them and, and Abraham says, Sarah, quick, let's, let's make a feast. You know, use all the flour and bless them. Let's have radical hospitality. And what we see is Sarah uses three measures of flour, 60 pounds of flour, and makes bread, bread fit for the feast of a king. And God and people have communion through hospitality. It's a beautiful story. And Jesus says, hey, the kingdom of God will be like that. Except the kingdom of God is, is the yeast. It's not the whole banquet. It's not going to work just like the banquet. I know it's going to begin with the yeast. It'll work its way through the whole batch until it's a radical blessing of communion with people and God. What Jesus is telling us is the kingdom of God. It starts without power. It starts in a way that is weak in the world's eyes. And what's really interesting about those Old Testament passages with the cedars of Lebanon, those great trees with branches for the birds to perch in, is that in both of those passages, the tree gets cut down by God. The God cuts down the tree and says, it's just another created thing. It cannot stand forever. It is not eternal. But Daniel goes on in that chapter, in chapter four, and then goes on in the letter later in the book to say that God's kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And so we keep reading and we pick up in verse uh, 21, 22, and we see that Jesus is traveling and people, well, they hear this, uh, this teaching about the kingdom of God. And their next question is, okay, so are you going to cut down Rome, the empire of our day, like you did with Babylon and Assyria? Are you going to cut down Rome? How are you going to deal with Rome? Are, are all these are, are the people who've oppressed us, you know, the Jewish people following Jesus who are under Roman oppression, are, are the people who oppressed us going to be saved too? Is God's going to, is God's kingdom going to reach all of them? And hey, am I, am I living a well, you know, well enough life that I'm going to make it into God's kingdom? And so the question that's asked is, well, Lord, are those who are going to be saved many? In other words, who's going to be saved? And we think about salvation here. And now in our modern day, 21st century American lenses, we generally think of salvation as me, the individual, having personal forgiveness of sin from God so that I can go up to heaven when I die. But the first century Jewish man asking this question would not have been thinking about salvation primarily as personal forgiveness and personal standing before God. He's thinking of it as communal salvation, communal forgiveness, communal standing with God. Now, for the Jewish people, the primary image of salvation was the exodus, where God rescued a people out of oppression and slavery to demonic forces of evil. These other gods, the gods of Egypt, he rescues his people and contends against the kingdom of Egypt and wins. Right? That was salvation for the Jewish people. That's what they're expecting. And we think about that, and then we hear the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed and a mustard bush. And it's like leaven in flour. And it's a woman who bakes that bread, by the way. 
You know, and we see this, this idea of the kingdom of God, it disrupts us a little bit. And Jesus is talking about the kingdom. And we want to know, well, are we going to make it? Are they going to make it? What is the vision of the good life? What is the true vision of the kingdom? Yeah. You know, I was on campus at Virginia Tech the other day, uh, sharing my faith with David. And it was St. Patrick's Day. You know, we had to walk to and from campus. Uh, from his apartment, and the street that we had to walk down was was lined with campus housing, and you know it's St. Patrick's Day, and everybody knows what St. Patrick's Day is for college students. It's an excuse to have darties, and those of you guys who don't know what darties are, they are day parties. If you didn't know that, bless your hearts. Um, but St. Patrick's Day is a day to have day parties for college students. And, uh, you know, none of us really celebrate St. Patrick's Day. I, I don't, at least, I don't know, maybe if you're um, severely Irish, I guess. Um, you know, but we, we walked this street. And I remember saying to David, I said, hey, you know, seeing all these students. It was the first time I'd seen so many college students. And none of them were with masks, right? We were the only ones wearing masks. And um, I see all these college students. I remember telling David, I said, you know, seeing all these college students, um, it, it makes me miss my college days. And part of that was me just reminiscent of my friends in college, you know, Stephen and Gracia and Karen and Eric and uh, Josh Himanaka and Clarissa and Sam, you know, I, I remember all these amazing people and these amazing times. You know, but part of me too saw in these students, who were in these day parties, a sense of carefree and worryless living. You know, part of me saw. Now, this life of expecting to receive great salaries, things going well for you, drinking the day away, a blossoming social life. And for me, this was a vision of the good life, a modern day kingdom or empire. And for a few moments, it was appealing to me. Now, I was desiring days where I wouldn't have to try all that hard. And it made me feel like being a Christian is really hard. You know, it made me desire the light burden in the way of Jesus. But man, do these other visions of the good life look appealing at times. And I ask you, what is your vision of the good life? Seriously, what is your vision of the good life? And it might be helpful to just spend some time in writing this out. What is your vision of the good life? What does the good life to you look like? And journaling about it. Describe what, you're, what you want your kingdom to look like. And honestly, it's probably a king-size bed. And then compare that vision of the kingdom, your vision of the kingdom, to the visions of the kingdom that you're surrounded by. The visions of the kingdom that this world offers us in our local context. And if I were to guess, our visions of the good life, the kingdom, would probably appear as just a more Christianized version of what our mm -hmm. culture offers us. You know, I think we want to have our cake and eat it too. You know, some of us look at our family units and our kids and the good life seems to be having a kid that we make the life e their, their life easy for them. Having a kid and making their life easy, making them successful and sending them off onto their own for their own promised future that's going to be amazing. You know, some of us are spending just as much time on social media as our peers around us are. And some of us are even consuming, sorry, consuming the same type of media that our peers are consuming. 
You know, some of us plan our schedules and our finances the same way the rest of our community does. We look at our own interests first. We buy the things that we want first. We pay for our own bills first. We fill our schedules with our own hobbies, the relationships that we uh, love, that come naturally to us. And our schedules and our finances are, are self-absorbed. And when we have leftover, then we give to the poor among us. Then we give to the church. Then we give to nonprofit organizations when we have leftovers. Then we hang out with the person who we know is in need, the person who maybe is different from us. We hang out with them when, when we have nothing else to do. When we have no other thing to fill our calendar. And I think we have this tendency to think of ourselves in such a way that as long as I go to church consistently and read my Bible and pray somewhat often, then I'm good with the kingdom of God. And I ask the question, does the kingdom of God disrupt us? Because the kingdom of God that Jesus painted in these verses is a disruptive kingdom. It's a kingdom that contends with the kingdoms of this age. And I think we must all ask ourselves the question, is this disrupting my life? And how so? Because when Jesus says this great tree is, is the kingdom, that's, normal, that's the image that they were all used to. But then he says it's a mustard seed, though. It's tiny. It's a bush. It's not a tree that reaches the heavens. But it's still a blessing. He says, you know, this radical hospitality, this great feast, the kingdom of God starts with leaven that mixes its way through the whole batch. It disrupts the dough. It changes the chemical balance of the dough so that it multiplies. It rises. I ask, is the kingdom of God disrupting our life? Is it contending with the other kingdoms? Or have we kind of accepted other, other views of the good life, other kingdoms, and are trying to just fit the kingdom of God in on the side? Who then will be saved? You know, I think about this time in college. I was living in the house that, Sarah, uh, that, the, that the Wigmans and Sharon live in now in Redfields. And uh, it was me and a bunch of guys. And one of the guys I was living with was Param. And, you know, Param had this vision of his good life where, you know, he didn't just have a mattress on the floor of his bedroom anymore, but he actually had a box spring. And so he was searching to buy a box spring. And he asked us, hey, can anybody help me go pick up this box spring I'm going to buy? And I said, oh, sure, I have a car. I'd love to, I'd love to help you. And I'm like, the only thing is, I, I, you know, I don't know if the box spring will fit in my car. And he's like, oh, I'm sure it will. So I'm like, all right, let's go. So I drive him over. We go to this, this, uh, this person he's buying this box spring from, and I help him carry it out of the house. And as soon as I'm like lifting this thing, I'm like, there's absolutely no way this is fitting in my car, right? And so we open up the back, and it's a RAV4. I'm like, try it. We're like, try. Like, there's no way it's fitting, right? And uh, he's like, well, can we put it on the roof? I was like, I mean. Like, yes, but how are we going to tie it down? Like, he's like, do you have any rope? I'm like, ah, let's look. So we look in the car, no rope in sight, you know? And then uh, uh, the only thing I had was my Eno hammock straps. And so I have hammock straps, two hammock straps. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe we can make this work. And so I tie the hammock straps together and we, so that they're long enough to reach around the roof rack. And so we, we tie them together and they, they go around the mattress, we get it on the top of the car. We tie it to the roof rack and it's just one, you know, one piece of rope tying it to the roof rack right in the middle. And we're like, okay, if it's in the middle, maybe it'll work. And so like, let's, let's see if this works. 
we get in the car, we start driving and we're just in a neighborhood at this point, like 20 miles per hour. And the mattress is just flying up. You can just <laughs> feel the wind lifting it up. Our car is like shaking. And I'm like, oh my, like, we've got to drop this thing. There's no way we're getting it home. He's like, no, we've got to fight for the mattress. We've got to get it home. I need this, ma- this, uh, this box spring. Sorry, not mattress. Uh, he's like, we've got to fight for it. I'm like, all right. We stop the car. We look at it. Like, I don't know what to do. So I'm like, all right, we're going to keep our windows down. And we're going to put our arm out the window and hold the mat- the box spring on top of the car. Okay, hold it down. And so I am driving one arm, holding the mattress with one side. Param's on the other side, arms, body out the window, holding the mattress down with all the strength. And it looked like this. Let's see if Malia can sh- share the picture. And so we're, we're driving and then we get on the highway. We have to get on the highway to get home. And this is a picture on the highway. We're just one arm out the window. Param's got both arms. And it's like every fiber in our being is fighting to keep this mattress on the car. The wind is lifting it up. We're going like 60 miles per hour, which is slow on that highway, by the way. And then the wind is just shaking the car. I'm like doing everything. I'm like, by the way, we're not strapped in. I'm like standing in my seat because I can't even like barely reach the pedal and the mattress at the same time. And Param's, you know, hanging out the window and he's like, Ben, I can't hold on any longer. We got to stop. We got to stop. I'm like, we can't stop. We've got to go. He's like, no, I'm slipping. I'm going to let go. And I'm like, don't let go, Param, don't let go. Fight for the mattress. Fight for the box spring. You know, and every, he's like, my arms are dying. They're burning. They're burning. Every muscle in our arms, every fiber in our being was fighting and contending to hold on to this box spring. And he's just shrieking. He's like, ah! you know, just shrieking to keep this box spring on top of the car. But he did not let go. He did not let go. And we made it home and my man had the box spring. And for many of us, we're like, yeah, everybody has a box spring. But for college guys, it's not as, not as normalized to have a box spring. They're more okay with the mattress on the ground. You know, but we read this passage about the kingdom of God. Who's going to get in? You know, who then will be saved? Who is the kingdom of God going to reach? And who's going to come in? And Jesus says, hey, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I, try, I, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. And we, we tend, when we read this, we tend to, to read a dichotomy into the passage that doesn't exist. We tend to read in, oh, there's the one who strives, according to the ESV, or makes every effort. They're really doing this thing. And then there's the person who's trying, who's doing some things, but it's not good enough. Like, they're not trying enough, right? And we say, oh, they're going to church, but maybe they don't have a personal relationship with God. Right. And we kind of draw this this false dichotomy that's not there. You know, the, the, the NIV translates the original language in a way that's a little bit deceiving here, just here. And he says, tries to enter, but will not be able to. He says many will try. In the original language, the verb used is actually to seek. And so he says, and many will seek to enter, but will not be able to. And we read that compared with strive like what's the difference between striving and seeking and you know is seeking not good enough right the parallel passage to luke 13 is in matthew 7 where where jesus you know says you know enter through the narrow path right wide is the path that leads to destruction but before that he says ask and you shall receive seek and you will find knock and the door will be opened and so we're wondering is jesus contradicting himself here saying you're knocking but the door won't be opened you're seeking but you won't find I don't believe so. 
I think what Jesus is drawing a picture for his audience for in this parable is not that you'll seek and you won't find, that you'll knock and the door won't be opened. I think what he's saying is you're seeking the wrong kingdoms. You have other kingdoms that are competing and contending for your, uh, your salvation, your being, your worship. You have other kingdoms of this world that want you under their branches, that want you in their feasts, that want to offer you a vision of the good life. And you're seeking those visions of the good life rather than striving for the kingdom of God. And we wonder, well, then what does strive mean? What does it make, mean to make every effort? In the original language, the word here for strive or make every effort, it literally means to contend or to fight for. It's the same word and same uh, verbiage that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9 when he talks about a boxer or a, ra- a runner fighting to win the race. A boxer who doesn't box as one fit, you know, uh, beating the air, but to win the prize. It's the same word that Paul uses when he talks to Timothy. He says, fight the good fight and don't ever give up. The word for striving and making every effort means contend, fight. I think what Jesus is saying here in Luke 13 is the same thing that Luke says that Jesus said in Luke 16, 16. In Luke 16, 16, Jesus says all people who make it into the kingdom of God, all people force their way into the kingdom of God. It's this idea that the kingdom of God is a different kingdom that's contending with the kingdoms around you. And it wants your affections. It wants your devotion. It wants your worship. But you're going to have to fight your way in because these other kingdoms are still pulling you away. They're still attacking you. And when Jesus is talking to this man who says, who then will be saved? I think Jesus is painting this picture because this man, this man who, who hates Rome, who wants the kingdom of God to rule on earth as in heaven, This man, he only knows kingdoms like Rome. His whole life, he may hate the kingdom of Rome, but that's the very kingdom that's formed him and shaped him and showed him a vision of the good life, a vision where the Roman people have power and wealth and authority, a vision where one is better than the other, one rules over the other. And those visions of the good life have have impacted this man. And so when he hears that the kingdom of God is like a, a mustard seed that grows into a mustard bush, not a cedar of Lebanon. He's saying, well, what is this kingdom like then? Who's going to be in it? Help me understand. And Jesus is saying, contend for the kingdom of God. Because many are seeking the kingdom, but they're, they're on the wrong paths. They're seeking the wrong kingdoms. You know, Jesus is critiquing here a kingdom of power, a kingdom of religiosity, Right? He's, he's critiquing a people who come every Sabbath and share the Sabbath meal. They eat and drink together at the religious place. He's critiquing a people who come to the synagogue every week to hear their sermon, right? It's for us. It's, we share communion on Sundays. We come to church. We do and say the right things. But I wonder, is the kingdom of God disrupting us? Is it contending for us? I think it is, but are we contending for it? You know, for, for Jesus' audience, they must fight the Rome and Babylon and Egypt out of themselves. They must re-envision the kingdom of God. And this was a cutting blow to the crowds. And Jesus doubles down on this idea in verses 28 through 30, where he says, all of your patriarchs, all of the prophets, 
these guys, Daniel, Ezekiel, Abraham, Sarah, they're all going to sit down at the table, at the feast in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves will, will miss out. Indeed, the first shall be last and the last first. You know, for us, church, we're looking for cedars of Lebanon. We're looking for great banquets. But the kingdom of God comes in mustard seeds and in yeast. You know, I think about people who, who are letting the kingdom of God disrupt their life and who are contending against other visions of the good life for the kingdom of God. I think about Kim Bassett. I think she shared so vulnerably with us, like bringing us to tears, right? Well, man, she's faced with kingdom, you know, kingdoms of this world, visions of the good life. But yet she's fighting in prayer for the kingdom of God. You know, here in the NRV, we just had this awesome uh, NRV campus ministry camping retreat Friday and Saturday. And I think about two people, Jack Lindenmuth and, uh, and Marjon, they both drove from halfway across the state and the full way across the state on Friday to come camping with us. And it was like 20 degrees outside. It was freezing. None of us slept at all, you know, and, and we're distant. We have masks on. Like that's the camping retreat. But they drove halfway and full way across the state to be with there, be with us there because they have this vision of the kingdom of God. They're like these people who are different than me. I belong with them. I want to be with them. I want to be unified with them. I want to contend for our relationships. And then that inspires me. I had no idea they were coming until this week. Um, it was amazing. You know, I think about people like Macon Maxi, who's always the first to let his life be interrupted so he can use his pickup truck to help people move. You know, there's so many more examples in our families here. You know, but as much as the visions of the good life that this world is tempting us with, as much as they're contending for our hearts and our worship, we ought to be those who see that the kingdom of God does not come in a king-sized bed. You know, Jesus' kingdom is not a king-sized bed. And honestly, it's not a full-sized bed or a twin-sized mattress either. You know, Luke's gospel is the one that shows that Jesus was born in a manger. Luke's gospel is the one that shows that the kingdom of God is meant to disrupt us. We have the king of the world, the creator of the universe. And he comes in a bed that's a wooden trough that animals eat out of. This disrupts our vision of the good life. And yet it welcomes us into a new way of being in this world. A way of contending for the kingdom of God in this world and in our lives. And I have three little practicals for us this morning. I think one is we need to have contending visions. We need to have visions that contend with the visions that this world gives us. And that shows us what God might be up to. I ask you to look and just analyze your life and see what might God be up to here? How is his kingdom fighting to knock out these other kingdoms? And how am I fighting to be part of that story rather than these other stories? You know, I think about the Dowdies, right? Cody and Brittany Dowdy, who in 2020, they let the kingdom of God disrupt their lives because they have this vision that, hey, this contending kingdom to the kingdom of this world, making amazing dollars, by the way, in uh, counseling and in, in uh, um, what's it called, engineering. And then they moved to Lynchburg, Virginia to plant a church, right? This vision of the kingdom that's contending in their lives. And the second thing I think is contending words. 
So contending visions, contending words. Now, I think God's word to us ought to disrupt our life. Then God speaks to us through awesome brothers and sisters that we have. God speaks to us in his word, in the Bible. God speaks to us sometimes in worship songs, sometimes in our prayers. God has so many ways of letting his spirit speak and guide us. Let us be those who look in the Bible and look to each other and ask, how can God's kingdom disrupt me? And how can I fight to be part of that story? And the third thing is, I think, contending hospitality. I think what we see here is a kingdom that blesses all people. It blesses the poor and the marginalized and invites the other in. And so I think contending hospitality means coming to the table with those who are unlike us, the people who are not as comfortable with, the people who it's harder to love, for us to be the brothers and sisters who are the real family of God by having contending hospitality that shows that the hospitality this world has to offer is no hospitality at all. And so with this in mind, church, let us be those who contend for the kingdom of God. While we are tempted to seek other kingdoms, let us fight tooth and nail to rid Rome and Egypt from within us. We must contend for the kingdom of God, fighting for it. Let us be those who do not let go of the mattress or the box spring. When our spiritual muscles are about to give out, let us never let go. Let us fight until the end. And when we ourselves sit at the table of the feast in the kingdom of God, along with those who we may never have expected, let us be those who are rejoicing because it is indeed the good life. Amen. With that, I'm going to say a closing prayer before the announcements. Holy Father, Lord, I pray that you bless and keep our audience, God. I pray that you bless and keep our family here. Lord, make your face shine upon my brothers and sisters here and be gracious to them. Lord, turn your face towards us and give us peace in this world. As we depart to return again all together next Sunday, God, this week, be with us. Let us walk in step with your spirit as you are the guide. God, empower us to never let go, to not give up on your kingdom, God, but to fight our way into it, to fight for it, and to let it fight out all other kingdoms from within us. Lord, help us live into your story that truly is the good life. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.